Evidence and Answers. Who doesn't have access to the internet today? We all have smartphones, tablets, PCs, and a host of other resources available to us. Protection from online pornography is essential. Parental involvement is the first line of defense. You're listening to Evidence and Answers with your host, Dr. Pat Zukran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on Evidence and Answers, Pat Zukran and his guest, Kirby Anderson, president of Probe Ministries, will continue to tackle another tough topic. Pat is currently going through a series that focuses on ethics. The topic today is pornography and the internet. An innocent-looking computer screen or television set for those with web TV can turn out to be a portal to addictive and powerful relationships with people we would never otherwise meet. Let's join Pat and his guest, Kirby Anderson, as they discuss this topic. And once again, we have with us Kirby Anderson. He's published a brand new book, Christian Ethics in Plain Language by Nelson Publishers. Fantastic book that you're going to want to get. And we were talking about media and entertainment and how Christian ethics apply in that arena. Well, related to that is this whole area of pornography. Now, Kirby, the, we're going to hit the road running right here. When does art cross the line and become pornography or the profane? That's a good question. And there have always been people that have said, well, I don't know what pornography is, but I know it when I see it. Well, that doesn't help very well. And it turns out that there was a very important uh, court case in 1973, Miller versus California. It's amazing how many court cases came down in 1973, because that's Roe versus Wade and many others. But it really set forth for the first time a three-part test on what is pornography. And real simply, it just says, if an average person applies community standards, they would say, as a result, they work taken as a whole appeals to the pure and interest. In other words, if you go before a jury and say, look, people in this community would see this as somewhat offensive, which is the second point, that it's patently offensive. And number three, that the work taken as a whole lacks serious literary, artistic, political, or scientific value. So what they do oftentimes, if they do have a trial dealing with obscenity, which is legally defined, pornography being the general category, obscenity being the more specific one, it simply says to a jury, was this this work patently offensive? Would this violate community standards? And does it have any redeeming social value? It's also one of the reasons why some of these so-called adult magazines have put in articles about uh, um, your lifestyle and clothes and things like that because they wanted to get away from the possibility that they might be prosecuted. So ever since then, we've had a good definition of obscenity. Of course, we also have definitions about child pornography, and this administration has actually begun to enforce some of those rules rules and some of those laws which the previous administration did not do. We're not talking about art. Uh, you know, seeing a naked woman in an art gallery is not what we're talking about. We're talking about things that involve degradation, involve sexuality, uh, appeal to the purine interest. And so those are actually defined in the law and by that Supreme Court precedent that came down in 1973. Now, who determines, you know, what is pornographic and, and what is not? It seems here in America, you know, it's the majority that makes the decision. Biblically, though, how would we 
determine that. Well, I think the uh, issue goes back to some of the verses that we talked about uh, last week when we were on the program, and that is to recognize that the Scriptures do talk about in uh, Colossians 3.8 those things which uh, would cause uh, lustful thoughts, which would cause various kinds of actions, or to uh, they would be in contrast to, say, Philippians 4.8, some of those things which are pure and worth uh, lovely and all the rest. So we are talking about a very clear definition in the Scriptures, which is unfortunately not as clear within our society. But that being said, uh, I think a good way to measure the impact of pornography is to recognize garbage in, garbage out. In other words, if you begin to recognize that you are desensitized towards sexuality, you're desensitized towards violence, even desensitized towards profanity, then maybe you want to reevaluate the inputs in your life. And that, in a sense, is what the Apostle Paul in various verses seems to be implying. Look at the impact of whatever you're looking at is in your life. And there are studies, which as you well know in my book on pornography, that we document to show that uh, individuals will look primarily at young males, because that's what a lot of the studies have been done, who see these highly sexualized images uh, become desensitized. And even more so, these studies that have shown when they show sexualized images with violence oftentimes become desensitized towards rape. So the issue is, from a scriptural point of view, is if I'm putting garbage in, garbage is going to come out. But if I'm going to put the Word of God in, then good things are going to come out. Kirby, I once heard a lecture from a woman uh, who had studied pornography, and she said the rape myth was very prevalent in pornography. Many porno- pornographic movies have this uh, this issue where if you can just get the woman going, then she will comply sexually. And so you'll see her saying no, 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 and actually fighting and then suddenly giving in. And a lot of men took that seriously. Oh, certainly. Uh, work by Donnerstein and Strauss and others uh, have actually dominated that that so-called rape myth has been one of the things that actually has fueled sexual exploitation and many of these kinds of uh, sexual crimes that have taken place. So uh, I think almost all of us have a pretty good sense of what is pornographic in terms of our own lives. We do have a legal definition of obscenity, but more to the point, in terms of living our Christian lives, I think the good philosophy is when in doubt, don't. And oftentimes the biggest problem, Kevin and Pat, that we have today is people oftentimes aren't even looking for it. It comes to find us. It's a very aggressive kind of temptation. We are minding our own business. We're driving down the road, and there's a billboard. We're channel surfing through the TV set, and whoa, all of a sudden I see something. Or I'm just clicking on the Internet, and all of a sudden something is trying to attract my attention. And how we choose and what we choose to do after that is very, very crucial. Curry, you know, something I'm hearing a lot in these debates, what about freedom of speech? Aren't my rights as uh, someone who would be in the business of pornography protected by this whole freedom of speech? Well, again, we do provide a tremendous amount of freedom of speech. The First Amendment is something that we are enjoying right now as we're on a talk show. But the Supreme Court in 73, as I pointed out, has defined obscenity. The individuals that are calling for free speech oftentimes are portraying and promoting material that actually is doing great harm to our society. 
Let's also add one more, and that is the incredible rise of child pornography, the connections that can be made between viewing child pornography and um, all sorts of pedophilia and things of that nature are very, very dangerous. So nobody believes that you have total freedom of speech. You do not have the right, to use a classic illustration, to yell fire in a crowded theater. You do not have a complete unhindered right to promote material that is harmful to society. In most cases, though, our society and our government has backed off, and we've probably allowed a lot more than we as Christians would agree with. We live in that kind of society. I understand that. But the reality reality is is that you don't have complete unhindered freedom to say anything or do anything that you want and if you did there would be a devastating consequence in our society well let's move to another topic here that a lot of people are afraid to address the whole issue of adultery now you got in your chapter here on adultery some myths about adultery Go for some myths of adultery. One of the things that I wanted to add to this book is something that I've never seen in any Christian ethics book before, and that is kind of that unspoken sin, because as you well know, Pat, we... um oftentimes on the probe website address apologetics and issues and yet time and time again of all the almost 2,000 different articles we have on the probe website the one that almost always at the top of the list is the one on adultery which Mm -hmm. I wrote and so I felt that it might be good to actually put this into the book because when we're talking about sexual ethics and we talk about divorce cohabitation uh, sexual promiscuity and of course what we've been talking about with pornography I thought that this issue of adultery is very important. Now, one of the myths has to do with the fact that adultery is about sex. Now, I'm not denying that it is not about that, but there are lots of studies that show that the thing that draws people into an extramarital relationship oftentimes is some kind of hole in their heart, something that is missing, some kind of unmet need. Now, I'm not here to blame the person who whose husband or wife committed adultery. That's not my point. But I am saying that that individual begins to sense that there are certain needs not met. And Willard Harley's probably counseled more individuals who have gone through extramarital affairs, at least in the Christian world, than anybody else. I wrote a book years ago called His Needs, Her Needs, just really talking about how to build an affair-proof marriage. Uh, and I think it illustrates that oftentimes it has as much to do with meeting emotional needs as any kind of sexual exportation. Another one has to do with the idea that, well, you know, it's uh, it's really about character, that the people that get involved in affairs, well, they just, they really don't have a good Christian life. They really uh, don't have good character. They're not people of integrity. And I got into this a long time ago because you and I have seen wonderful people at places like Dallas Theological Seminary who have taught so well. And I look at at them as they as spiritual giants compared to me and then they fall into extramarital affairs i'm going what chance do i have if somebody who i see as my spiritual mentor falling and i came to realize that it didn't have so much to do with your spiritual life sometimes it had to do with your lack of accountability had to do with certain unmet needs and things of that nature and one more myth i'll pick out real quickly is the idea that adultery is harmless if there is one theme that just seems to be running through most movies it is that this might actually encourage you. It might actually fulfill you. And whether it's movies like English Patient or uh, The Bridges of Madison County, they all sort of make it feel like this This is helpful, it's therapeutic, and what they don't tell is the rest of the story. And so as um, I felt that it was important to address all aspects of ethics, we put this chapter on adultery in. And as you well know, on the Probe website, it still is the one topic that seems to be at the top of the list almost every single month. Right. You know, and Christians struggle with this issue. We know that uh, 
you know, there is a high percentage of adultery uh, in churches, unfortunately. And why is that the case, you feel? Well, I think it has to do in part because we don't talk about it. So what we find ourselves doing oftentimes is by not addressing an issue, the issue becomes worse. Um, I, for example, write on the subject of verbal abuse. I can't tell you the number of times people say it's the first time I've ever heard a Christian address the issue of abuse or verbal abuse. If we address the issue of adultery, maybe we have a better chance of helping people understand that we live in a world with a great deal of temptation. Greater men than you and I have fallen. So maybe you can learn some lessons from this. Fantastic. We're talking with Kirby Anderson, author of Christian Ethics in Plain Language, Brand new book. We were talking about Christian ethics and this whole area of adultery. Now, Kirby, here's a new issue that has just recently surfaced as a problem in our culture today. Whole uh, problem of online affairs. Something uh, that came with the internet and the ability to correspond through email. When does online correspondence become an online affair? Good question. And one of the reasons I put this chapter on adultery and even added the material on online affairs is because I realize we're moving in a different world. As you well know, I originally wrote a book about seven years ago called Moral Dilemmas. And when Thomas Nelson asked me to uh, revise it and actually create almost kind of like a textbook, I um, added a number of chapters. And one of the chapters I added was on adultery. But something else I noticed, how the Internet in those seven years had changed things. You know, we've always had pornography, but now we have online pornography, which has changed the dynamic dramatically. We've always had gambling, but now we have online gambling. People that might not go into a casino now can gamble online. And the same thing with adultery. Adultery has always been around, but... It was more difficult to find someone, but now you go to one of these chat rooms and it's a little too easy. And so in every case, we've seen how the Internet has taken a bad social problem and made it worse. Now, when you go to these chat rooms, I think by the moment you walk into the chat room, you may be crossing the line. Uh, for example, there are chat rooms that are you know entitled such things as single and liking it, flirting, naked on the keyboard. I, right off the bat, I think that's probably telling you I don't want to go into that room. Mm-hmm. Now, as soon as you go into that room, you have to also recognize something else, and that is you live in a world that is not a real world, it's a cyber world. And so all of a sudden, all the men are strong and good-looking, none of them are bald, they're misunderstood by their wives, all the women are voluptuous, they're athletic, uh, they're sexually interested. In other words, people take on a persona. But something else, Pat, that I've noticed, and that is just the dangers of these chat rooms in the first place is people who, if they were looking at you right now, would never say what they say in a chat room, but that level of anonymity also allows you to share deep areas of concern, hurt, need, and whatever. And so I think that the question that you should be asking is, why should I go into one of those chat rooms in the first place? Okay, you say, well, I don't go into a chat room. We just exchange emails back and forth. Just begin to evaluate that as well. A good question is, if I'm sending an email, would my spouse feel good about the email I just sent. Good question. And so there are some, I think, questions that can be asked, but the reality is we're finding a lot of people that are addicted to the Internet. Now we're finding, as well, people that are addicted to kind of the sexual aspect of the Internet. And so the implications are, long-term, is that adultery's always been with us. It's not like this is a new phenomenon. But online affairs is a new phenomenon, and I think it's going to be something, again, that we need to address. That's why I talk about it in the book, and that's why I encourage pastors who might get a copy of this book to think about addressing it from the pulpit, because it's just a new temptation that we find ourselves in in the 21st century. And they'll say, oh, it's just a fantasy. See, it's a cyber world. It's not an actual world. Even though there's another person at the other end on a keyboard, you can go in in the anonymity. Surely there's no harm to that. 
Well, for every person that probably does play that game, there are many that act out the fantasy. And so I'll be the first to say, you know, there are probably some people who are just playing around and goofing around. But I can tell you, and I, we've even had close friends that actually went on the Internet and found someone that they decided to go with and then divorce their friends. So uh, you start seeing that play out and you recognize that on the front end, maybe they could play the game that it's harmless. On the back end, you see the same devastation that takes place. So the yeah, question and, and you you're being is, emotionally vulnerable yes. with someone in, at any rate. At that point, you're, you're crossing over, I, I think. Uh, you certainly are. Yeah. Because uh, what you find is that people, Pat and Kevin, that if you were sitting across a table, would never share the kinds of things that they do online. And that's what's starting to begin to cause people that are in this field to be concerned, is that in some respects, this breakdown breaks down certain barriers. After all, we do have some boundaries. Let's you know go back to a, a book by Cloud and Townsend that there are boundaries, and there's some basic boundaries all of us have. But there are some ways to drop those boundaries. One, of course, through alcohol. Another is by going to nightclubs. But another is to go into these internet chat rooms where all of a sudden individuals are sharing deep, dark secrets, looking for help, encouragement, uh, trying to get certain kinds of needs met, and it just becomes very, very easy for people to stumble. Well, let's hit another topic here. It's closely related. Cohabitation. Two people who are not married living together. Isn't this a good test run for marriage? No, here we go. Uh, you know, that is another one of those articles which, again, surprises me, but it's always in the top ten. Now, that didn't surprise me as much because uh, for a while I was writing some short commentaries on the Probe website on living together and cohabitation, and I would then get calls from pastors saying, I love what you've got here, but I need more. And in every case, what happened, Pat and, and Kevin, was that you would have a pastor say, look, I've got a couple that's living together in the church. I give them a couple of Bible verses, and they go, well, yeah, but I still think this is probably better. I mean, after all, you wouldn't buy a pair of shoes without trying them on. You wouldn't take a car out to uh, buy a car unless you had a test run. Uh, do you have any sociological data? And I said, well, actually I do. So I did a week of radio programs and eventually turned this into a chapter in which I document that individuals who wouldn't at all be able to sign the doctrinal statement at your church nevertheless are concluding through good scientific social research that if you live together, you're actually decreasing your chances of marital success for lots of different reasons. But I know enough about some of these researchers to know that they would hardly be considered evangelical Christians, but they're being honest with the data. And after all, it uh, it sounds reasonable that after all, you want to try on a pair of shoes or you want to test drive a car. But the difference is, is that after you try on those shoes, those shoes don't have emotional baggage. If you um, test drive a car, you don't leave half of your emotions in the trunk of the car. And when you get involved in living together, first of all, you're violating basic sexual ethics. But more importantly, you're developing patterns that will harm your future, future marriage because there is, a sense, no real commitment. You know, it's not as long as death shall uh, you know, says, until death do us part, it's as long as love shall last. So you find yourself in a situation where you're developing really bad relationship patterns and increasing the likelihood of marital failure rather than marital success. Now, how do you respond to the person who typically says, well, my brother did it and they have a fine marriage, or my sister-in-law did it and they have a fine marriage, so maybe it's not okay for the majority, but for a few, it is. 
Well, first of all, anecdotes aren't statistics, and that is I can always find an exception to anything. But uh, you look at the statistical evaluation, and it would say that if indeed you find something that, quote, looks successful, then that doesn't prove the case. You know, there are always some exceptions to the case. But let's come back and ask yourself a fundamental question. What would that relationship have been like if they had actually waited until marriage? Well, we, of course, don't know that because we can't reverse the tape and go back and see what would have happened. But there are very, very good scientific studies done by people with reputable credentials that point out that, yeah, that might look like a marriage that survived. Okay, they didn't become a divorce statistic, but in terms of the actual relationship, there are still difficulties. I remember when I first published this article on cohabitation, one of the staff members who used to be at Probes left uh, years later came to me and just said, you know, uh, my husband and I didn't wait until uh, we, we were married, and I've resented it ever since, and really, I hadn't even thought about it till I read your article, and I'd all of a sudden had all those emotions again. Now, you could look at that marriage and say, they're doing pretty well, actually, but the bottom line is is that when they get down to some of those core issues, there were problems. So, certainly, I can acknowledge that there are people that have lived together for years, then later get married and have never had a divorce, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that proves the case. If anything, that might be the exception rather than the rule, and we don't have a chance to go back and see whether or not it would have been even better if some of those decisions hadn't been made on the front end. Yeah, you find this a growing statistic of more people living together before they're married. Is that a growing epidemic, or has it always been there? Cohabitation has increased 400% since 1960. And the reason I know that is because a man by the name of Bill Bennett put together an index of leading cultural indicators and pointed out that the fastest-growing statistic in America, in terms of social statistics, was the idea of cohabitation and and, uh, illegitimate births and all those kinds of things. So this has grown dramatically. Now, the one thing that seems to accelerate it even more is the fact that if you go to other countries, which, for example, have legalized same-sex marriage, we've talked about this before on this program because we've had sort of a social experiment taking place in Norway and Sweden and the Netherlands. Let me just take Norway as an example. You have one uh, particular uh, county called Nordland, and there where they've legalized same-sex marriage, the uh, illegitimate birth rate and cohabitation rates almost 80 percent in other words once you devalue heterosexual marriage uh, because you have homosexual marriage you devalue every marriage and most people just live together anymore and that's kind of the future so we can see that uh, we have a whole generation growing up saying well you know my parents went through a divorce so maybe we won't get married we'll just live together and so unfortunately one of the fastest growing statistics has to do with this issue of cohabitation wow well we only got a minute left kirby uh, could you summarize for us in just a brief time that we have what we as Christians and what churches can do in facing some of these new ethical issues coming up? Well, it seems to me that pastors really need to address this issue of sexual ethics, and we address it at a number of different levels. Today, we've talked about pornography to really evaluate what you read and see and hear and exercise discernment. When we talk about such issues as adultery and cohabitation, we really just need to speak to what the Bible has to say. But at the same time, I think we need to make the case that it isn't just the Bible. The Bible should be sufficient for us to accept. But we have a society that's sort of skeptical and saying, well, maybe the Bible's old-fashioned, or I don't know, maybe that just applied in the first century, but not the 21st century, to point out, as I do in my book, that all the social statistics also emphasize that the Bible is right and that we should really begin to live our lives according to biblical truths, and we do so, we'll have strong marriages and strong families. This is Kirby Anderson and his new book, 
Christian Ethics in Plain Language by Nelson Publishers, available at probe.org. Kirby, thanks for being with us. Thank you. This concludes Pat's interview with Kirby Anderson of Probe Ministries. To learn more about Probe Ministries, visit their website. That's probe.org. Kirby Anderson has a wide variety of resources available to you. Evidence and Answers is a listener-supported radio ministry outreach. If you've been blessed by Evidence and Answers radio broadcast, please join us in prayer and with a financial gift by logging on at our website at evidenceandanswers.org and click on the Donate button. Our key sponsor is Highland Capital Management, providing alternative investment solutions for more than 20 years. To learn more, visit their website at hcmlp.com. That's it for now. Tune in next time as Pat and his friends discuss current issues and answer the tough questions we face today. Providing reasons for faith and hope in Christ, right here on Evidence and Answers. Oh, 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 o